0: Welcome to another episode of the Sawdust and Fire Podcast. We are your host. I am Hunter Johnson.
1: And I'm Thomas Baldridge.
0: Boy, Thomas, here we are again. Another week's done passed by. And, uh, you know, we're still trying to wrap up deer season. But I got to look in that uh, Facebook the other night and started hearing all of these uh Deer hunters on a on a Facebook page talking about deer numbers and deer being over hunted and you know here me and you are part of the DMAP program and and we're shooting does as fast and furious as we can, um, and uh, you know I know a lot of things come into play. It's been an extremely dry year around here and and uh, sloughs are dry and the rivers were dry and the deer can spread out and a bumper acre and crop and so. I started to answer some of those guys on there and but I'd just be speculating so um I thought man what what better way than to uh get the guys that know what's going on with the deer population in state of Arkansas
1: yeah yeah man that's right you know i I think they actually shared some information I don't know where they got it on uh, some statistical information on uh harvest previous harvest for different years and all that kind of stuff and then basically insinuated that that our numbers have declined due to a lack of harvest. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, I'm sure we had a lot of spike in, in everybody being in the outdoors due to, due to COVID. And some of that, hopefully some folks are finally going back to work, but some of that may be going back to normal. Um, so, you know, where, where you may see some ebbs and flows, you know, I don't know that we can make that judgment based on what they were sharing on Facebook.
0: Right, right. I'm with you. And, uh, so I thought, man, this this would make a great podcast. Uh I used to work for Game and Fish, did for a few years there and and met these guys and can vouch that they are both at the at the top of their game and just, just good, down to earth, educated folks on on deer across the state of Arkansas and, and other states as far as that goes. But we got Corey Gray and Ralph Meeker with Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. How you doing, guys? Good doing well. How are y'all? Great, great. Why don't why don't we get y'all to tell us a little bit about what role you play with the game and fish and and uh,
2: some experience you got? Uh, let's start with you, Corey. Yeah. Uh, again, before we get started, I appreciate you fellas reaching out to us. Uh, I I enjoy being amongst y'all, so really do appreciate the invite to to chat here this afternoon. Um, but yeah, like I said, my name's Corey Gray. I'm from Northeast Arkansas originally. I was born and raised around Paragould and uh, went to school at Arkansas State uh, from 1993 to 97. So I graduated with a bachelor's degree. This was back when Arkansas State were, were Indians, and so this was back <laughs> years ago. Uh, traveled to state trying to find work, you know how that is, and then landed with Game Fish in 1999 and, and been there ever since. Uh, uh, some of my career, I was a private lands biologist for, for about four years, and then uh, about 2003 I was selected as the state deer biologist and um <clears throat> was in and out of that role for many years I did do a tour of duty as the elk biologist for about three years and went back into deer uh Ralph and I tag team deer uh the deer program for several years and and uh, I felt like we were a pretty good combo there um and then uh cWd hit in 2016. And I had the opportunity to, to uh, go into the research division, which was brand new at the time. And, and they given me the opportunity to create something. And, uh, and so really, that fascinated me, just to be able to create a division in a state agency. And I don't think you get too many opportunities in your career to do that. And so now I'm the chief of the research division. And I get to work with uh, our wildlife veterinarian, our wildlife health biologist. We have a research biologist, Dr. Chris Madal. We have competitive grants coordinator. Uh, I have social scientists in my in my division. So we are a group of specialists, or they are a group of specialists. I just carry paperwork around, uh, but I'm thankful to be part of them. And it's been a it's been a tremendous. Uh, just a rejuvenation of my career and, and just, it's a highlight of my career just to be amongst these professionals.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's, uh, uh, I know the state's lucky to have you for sure. What about you, Ralph?
3: Well, I want to echo, uh, Corey's thanks. Uh, appreciate you guys having us on. Um, I'm always happy to answer questions about deer. I mean, that's, you know, what, what we do this for is Cause we, we love, the, the species and the habitats that we help manage, and uh, uh, we're happy to to be able to provide you know different opportunities and ensure that those resources are there for the public to use. Um, I'm from Greenwood, Arkansas, as uh, Western Archaeologist, South Fort Smith. Uh, went to community college here for a couple of years, then went to southwestern Oklahoma State and uh, Western Oklahoma got my bachelor's. Uh, and then uh, in the late 90s I went back uh, to UCA and got my master's and uh, from there I went to um, University of uh, Arkansas Monticello was a forestry researcher there for a couple of years uh, before I got onto the game and fish in 2003 and I worked at a fish hatchery there in Lone Oak um, a lot of folks that that uh, have gone through there we call it the joe hogan penitentiaries but uh, <laughs> got, got a lot learned a lot about raising fish and moving fish tr- around and um i uh, had hatchery biologist there for a couple of years before i got into wildlife management um cut my teeth in wildlife management in the brinkley office uh, as a private lands biologist and then uh in about 2007, I got the opportunity to move back to Western Arkansas as private lands biologist, and then in 2012, um, I got on Corey's team and was his assistant as uh, assistant deer coordinator, uh, and then I guess I run him off uh, in uh, 2016 and and uh, and uh, assumed this the deer program coordinator then, and so I've been in the deer program about 10 years now, and uh, I've been managing deer. Either through the deer program or through DMAP clubs, uh, since about 2005, so um, I've got the opportunity to meet a lot of interesting folks. Um, you know, deer hunting is the is the king of species. I, we we tease all the time between us and the the bear program and the waterfowl program, but deer uh, deer is an extremely important species here in the state, and uh, I I enjoy I enjoy the challenge. I enjoy the the, uh, the people that, that use the resource, the the different aspects of the job, so I, uh, I'm just happy to be here. Appreciate you guys.
0: We appreciate y'all coming on, and you know, I, I had been around both of y'all just a little bit, but I think when CWD was finally uh, discovered in Arkansas, folks, I got to tell you, these two gentlemen were some of the first guys there every morning, the last guys to leave ground zero from the beginning to the end, and working all day uh covered in blood skinning deer and and uh working their butts off and then doing paperwork at night and and it was just uh they done a phenomenal job and then of course you know rest of us going to a motel and kicking back but old ralph ralph had him a cot over in a shack no heat no air conditioner i don't even know if it had lights in it and he'd just go over and lay down on the cot and take him a nap till it's time to get up and go again and Oh what well, this went on what ten days fifteen days something like that
3: something like that I still have nightmares when yeah. I <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh we sure appreciate y'all's efforts I mean that was a uh, that was that was some kind of a deal I think that was uh uh everybody felt like they needed to be on cue for that deal um yeah that but, was
3: uh, uh that was one of those things you know we as an agency we we don't get together as much to to tackle big projects. You know, the snake hat eradication project was one of them. The, the duck blind removal was one of them. And definitely the CWD response was one of them. And, um, you know, that's one thing I'm sure Corey will, will talk about It. that this has just been a, a really an exhaustive effort um, by all of our staff. Um, and so we hope, you know, as things progress as management, as, as we learn more about CWD and we can Focus our efforts more effectively you know we cwd is something that we're going to be tackling for a long time to come yeah
0: Yeah. well since since we since we started out talking a little bit about cwd let's where are we at with all of it what's what's uh what's going on has it moved Mm -hmm. is it creeping anywhere is it contained um What have we learned since all this started? Uh, I've kind of been out of the loop on all of it for a while. So what, what do we got going on? Yeah,
2: I'll take over for a little bit. Um, You know, it was identified in Arkansas in 2016 and, and uh, you know, it's one of those kind of things where, you know, you, you probably know where you were at when JFK was shot and you know where you're at when Elvis died and well, you know what you were doing when you get a phone call that your state now has CWD and, and, Ralph and I were in North Carolina at a deer conference and I was just fixing to eat a cookie and my phone went off and so I didn't get to eat my cookie but um, we came back and we started in on trying to manage this thing getting our arms wrapped around it and since that time you know Dr. Jim Ballard a wildlife veterinarian has come on board and she is leading our efforts with AJ Riggs. AJ serves our wildlife health biologist and those two together lead our program, but but we do have an army of staff out there, primarily in the Wildlife Management Division, that, that oversee this. But we have been identifying it in, in other, other counties. We've identified or we've developed a, a management plan. And in that management plan, it's a five-year management and response plan. And part of that is developing a strong surveillance program. And, and I stress that because we know where CWD is at in North, northwest Arkansas. And, and we, we could drive up there this afternoon and, and probably see some animals in Newton County. And we know that. But our biggest attention right now is we want to look at the other counties of the state where we have not identified it or identified it in very low numbers so we can get ahead of it. You know, the prevalence rate in Newton County is very high. It's 25 to 30 percent. just depends on what age you look at and what sex you look at. But we want to catch this disease when it's early. It's like if you went to the doctor and you you had an illness, you hope you've caught it early because your your treatment options are are broader. And so we have developed a statistically valid surveillance uh, strategy that we've implemented in every county in the state. It's uh, statistically valid, so we know with confidence that we can say whether the disease is there or not. And that's why we're seeing these samples pop up in Union County, Independence County, and uh, Randolph County, because that surveillance plan is working. If the disease is out there, it's finding it. And it's good because you want to find it at that stage because you have more tools in the toolbox to, to evaluate it so this year we're kind of wrapping up right now our surveillance program it you know it never ends but but our our hunting season is is closing down uh we have found some additional samples in Independence County this year we found some more in Randolph County and we have found another female down there in Union County at Felsenthal so uh You know, it's like Dr. Ballard says, it's like Lay's potato chips. You never, there's never just such a thing as one. You can't eat just one. There's going to be more out there. And uh, we're finding it. And that's a good thing. But, uh, you know, management of it is very difficult. Uh, Everybody's ox gets gored with this disease. If you're a state agency, your ox is getting gored. You're having to manage budgets. You're having to manage staff time. If you're a hunter, your ox is getting gored because you're having to adjust you know you're not going to be able to bait and feed like you used to be able to or now you've got to debone your carcass and and so everybody's ox is getting gored in this disease and that's that's the frustrating thing about it um what i always encourage hunters to do you know hunters are peculiar animals anyway we have this routine that we have to go through just to go hunt a deer and we will sight in our rifles in the summertime, and we'll start planting food plots about September, and then we'll get our, our bags together, get, go get the red wasp out of our stands. And we've got this routine that we go through just to go shoot a deer. And what I've always tried to get hunters to do now is saying, add another spoke into that wheel and get your deer tested after the harvest. Go ahead and do all the things. Get rid of red wasps and do all the things that you got to do. But after you make the kill, add another step in there. Just one more step for me and get that animal tested. And then complete your will about eating that venison and enjoying it with your family. So we hope hunters are doing that. Our goal is to provide free testing for every hunter in every county and state from the beginning of deer season to the end of it. And staff in our agency is working very hard to do that. And and don't you have
1: some uh, uh, taxidermists that are also helping to pull some samples when, when people bring that, that nice buck in?
2: That's right. So we do have over 100 drop-off freezers in every county. But for those hunters that, that want to go to a taxidermist, want to get their deer mounted, we're contracting with uh, probably about 25 to 30 taxidermists throughout the state. And um, those taxidermists will pull it for free for the hunter, but the Game of Fish is paying the taxidermist. And if that doesn't work out, then you take it to one of our offices and work with one of our biologists and we'll pull that sample. And you know, once the taxidermist gets it caped out, then we can pull the sample for you. We don't want to ever run a cape. We don't want to ever run them out. Um, but we'll work around all that.
1: Well, you know, um, last year, I think it was, I'm trying to remember, Um, my son couldn't stay in bed past six o'clock in the morning, had to go out and tow the shotgun through the woods and deer season was over for us, but, uh, squirrel season was still in, I think. And anyhow, he called me, said, dad, I I found a deer down here dead. And, uh, so, oh boy, I'll be there in a minute. And, um, it was a young, uh, button buck laying in the Creek, And when I saw that and I couldn't find any injuries on this deer, he's miles from any roadway and, um, uh, you know, no, no gunshot wounds on this deer that I can find. Man. The first thing I thought is young juvenile male deer. And this is the first case of CWD in Y County, you know, that's immediately what I thought. And, um, so I reached out to, uh, you know, to game and fish and, um, AJ Riggs actually wound up helping me now Jen lives not far from me and uh but she was off doing something else I I don't know what but anyways so I said what 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 do I do you know and uh so I took a ton of photographs for her GPS location I I went overboard I I I realized you just want the sample but you know I, I had it in my head that this is this is it this is the beginning of the end and uh anyhow I pulled the sample but i guess i said that to say that you know i i took the i took a bunch of photographs deer hooves things she wanted to see uh locations uh aerial imagery just a lot of stuff carried the deer head to our local freezer in in white county wrote the tag information down she already knew what you know what was coming uh made the drop off at our location it was very painless um And, and now after having done that, um, you know, I, I wish more guys would do it. And then knowing what I know now a little bit more, especially about the method that I used to, uh, decapitate that, that deer had it been, you know, infected, uh, I wish I would have probably decontaminated stuff better and, you know, been a little bit smarter about what I was doing, but I was just thinking about getting the sample to her, but I said that to say that even though it was an off time during, during the winter, I think it may have been around Christmas time. You know, it's off time during the winter and, and uh, Dr. Ballard was, was off, uh, I think vacation, you know, AJ jumped in there. She walked me through stuff. She gave me her cell phone number. She gave me email addresses. She was all over it, you know, And was very good at at helping and she didn't know who I was didn't care who I was I was just a a hunter and you know she was going to help
2: yeah yeah AJ's a five-star player Um, and um, I'm very proud of her and I'm thankful that 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 she's with the Arkansas Game Fish and thankful for her efforts there on her CWD program but you know we have a lot of staff like that throughout the state there's been a lot of times that our biolog- biologists have gotten calls and had to leave dinner tables and had to leave family events to go, to go get a deer sample somewhere. And, uh, it just shows the dedication. I think that some of our staff have to the resources and cause they're not getting compensated, you know, for that, for those extra hours. Right. Um, and, um, so yeah, very, very thankful for that.
1: Well, and luckily, you know, our, our deer, uh, I you know, I like to say he tested negative, but when you get them results, they always leave some kind of weird wiggle room and you know, <laughs> failed to uh whatever it says. Not so, detected. Yeah. 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 It's like it's like submitting some other samples and stuff you do. They won't ever say you're clear. <laughs> they just say we didn't find
0: it. <laughs> so with that, um, so with CWD being what it is, um has it had any impact impact on deer numbers? Um, y'all, uh, I know harvest has been down, but you know I assume that's for another reason. We'll get into that in just a minute. But has it done anything to deer numbers? Has it had any effect on on hunter success?
2: Yeah, I, I you know Ralph may have some actually some solid numbers. Uh, we do know we have some private landowners up there in Newton County, especially that have said. You know, I've shot six deer and two of them are positive or three of them are positive, you know, multiple positive animals off the same property, even off the same deer stand. We have it to that point. And, uh, you know, there is a concern for Newton and Searcy County because of that high prevalence rate. And that's that's the primary reason why we've started this population study that we're doing with Dr. Mike Chamberlain and the University of Georgia at Athens is we we need to get ahead of that and so we actually have animals on the landscape now with GPS collars up there but we're trapping animals we're doing uh testing them at at, uh, at the point of capture so we know when we turn them loose who's positive and who's negative and we're following these animals we're also doing some population work we have uh, 100 and something cameras i think scattered around up there um so the point of that po- that project is to be able to project what that population is going to do in the future, because you don't want to be reactive. We don't want to come around in three years, five years, and Ralph seeing those harvest numbers go down, and then we have to be reactive to that. We want to be able to be proactive, and that's what this research will do. It will say it's going to project what that population is going to do. So if we know in, say, 10 years, that the disease is going to be projected to have a population decline, a negative impact on the population, then we as managers can start mitigating that now. So we can say instead of harvesting four does, maybe you just need to take two does. And we can start uh, mitigating that negative impact for down the road. Uh, you know, everybody in other states have talked about there is a cliff at some point that that the, the disease will have an impact on your population. But if we can prolong that cliff or minimize that cliff, then we need to do that now. And so that's what this project's going to do. And that's something I think is is unique about this project, is it's going to put us on some solid ground to be proactive instead of reactive. And I think that's worth its weight and go.
0: Right, you said something a while ago, man. Things must have advanced because when when I was there and involved, we were we were pulling brain stems and lymph nodes to to check uh, for CWD.
2: So what what what's the protocol now? Yeah, for your so on live animal testing, we do rectal biopsies, and you don't have that confidence as you do with a lymph node test, and so that's why on dead animals we always go to the lymph node. Uh, because you just know for, for certainty there, I mean, especially if you do an IHC test on them, but the rectal biopsy is, it gives you some degree of confidence. You're not a hundred percent, but, uh, it's the best method that we have going for a live animal. And so when we capture these, these animals, they'll put a satellite collar on them, do a rectal biopsy on them, and then they do all sorts of other measurements and they turn that thing loose. And then we're watching, we have, uh, you know, two animals say on the landscape, one positive and one negative, and we can look at how they interact with each other, their home range movements, mortality. Uh, you know, Some of the questions we're asking is, does a positive doe produce the same as a negative doe? Uh, because that's going to impact population if your females ain't producing fawns. Um, and so all those kind of questions we're going to be able to answer. So you're talking about that rectal thing
0: so basically, you're checking a deer's poop for
2: prions.
0: Is that correct?
2: I don't want to get down into the, in the weeds with you on this, Hunter. But it's a there's a gland in the deer's rectal, and and that's that's what they're they're extracting is that gland. And uh, some reason I don't want to get down to weeds because I don't know all the details, the gory details, and I probably don't want to know. I so. Uh, but that's it. There is a gland back there that we have uh, trained staff, trained researchers in Georgia. So it's a procedure. It's a medical procedure. They're performing on these these animals and and that's what they're getting is is a tissue, a sample of that gland.
0: OK, well, my mind, of course, I love to chase rabbits. But uh, when you said that, I'm like, man, if, if they're detecting prions in deer poop, then everywhere she drops a pellet, we're just leaving this. We're just leaving prions everywhere. Of course, that may be the case. I don't know, but, yeah. um, you know, uh, that's where my mind yeah. when you make. Prions that.
2: been found in, uh, semen, uh, urine, feces, and saliva. Wow.
1: Yeah. So man, I, I hate to even ask this because there's always controversy around CWD, um, you know, this morning we, Hunter and I did a podcast and, um, we talked about, uh, religion, politics, and wild turkeys. And <laughs> either, either, any one of them will get you beat up at your local, uh, your local deer camp. Um, and now we're talking about deer. So it's, it's just as controversial as any of those things. But then you start talking about CWD people get really just angry for, you know, no reason, but, um, what, You know, historically, or when this first happened, um, my family had a place in Polk County. So Polk County very quickly went under, um, you know, CWD regs and all that kind of stuff. And the initial regulations were hard for the hunter to understand, like dopey. You know, now I'm trying to make sure that I'm buying synthetic dopey or, or whatever the case may be. And I'm like, how is this? making any difference you know so sometimes it's hard to understand you know why we're doing what we're doing because we're just not educated in that area so what is the 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 plan I guess to try as far as it goes right now and and we talked this morning a lot about science and how it changes and evolves but for right now what is the plan you know for containment let's say there was a, a new a new county that got it What's the initial plan for containment as we stand right now? And then what's mitigation look like down the road?
2: Yeah, um, you know, we do have a management plan uh, and it basically has two objectives. Is one, you want to flatline prevalence. So where we know the disease is at, we want to flatline the number of individuals that's infected. And then the second main component of it is to contain it. So we don't want it spread anywhere. And how we handle that containment part is primarily through our carcass importation. So a carcass movement. And that's why you have to debone meat before you come out of those zones. We don't want you to bring infectious materials out into another part of the state. Um, and then also we uh, we know from our genetic work, and we can talk about genetics in a little bit if y'all want to, but uh, we know in Arkansas, our yearling males are doing most of the traveling, and that's a year and a half old buck. And so that's why we removed the three-point rule, is if you, if one of the most risky things you could have on the landscape is a yearling buck that is positive, because that sucker is going to get up and take it somewhere else. And so you want to stop that. And that's why we removed the three-point rule and allowed those individuals to be eligible to be harvested. Uh, another thing too, that goes into the, to the managing of the prevalence, and that's just that boiling pot, you know, that, that disease just sitting there accumulating and and wanting to boil over is we, uh, we target some females. And when you start looking at this disease amongst the females is, you know, when you see a group of does on your property, they're typically all kin to one another. That's mothers and aunts and sisters and nieces and grandmas and they're very social and so when one gets it they typically all of that group will get it and and they just set some festures uh, and so we we try to disrupt that and then the baiting and feeding we we do we compromise on the baiting and feeding we still allow that to be a tool for hunters but we know though at uh feeding locations that disrupts social groups just through some dna work so we know that uh when you have multiple family groups they tend to come together at a feeder that they typically would not interact with without the feeder so corn brings multiple feeder multiple families together that that normally wouldn't um so all those together and you're right i mean it's it's a cumulative disease and so we provide we uh, add cumulative management implications out there or management strategies. Uh, the urine thing was just one of them. We knew that the urine was risky. Uh, we knew that uh, if you're trying to manage risk, that is a hole in the bucket you try to to plug. And we knew there's a synthetic option out there. The, the you know the some of the urine we're just not sure where that's produced and and what all the animals were. We're into that, that that's coming out of and so that was just a, a risk uh one of those risk factors that we could plug in real quickly um and hunters did have to adjust it goes back to your ox being gourded. that's another one that you hunters had to be flexible with us and adjust and we have heard some feedback saying you know the synthetic is just not as good um and and i can't deny that i can't argue with them whichever way or the other but it was just trying to mitigate risk well yeah.
0: so what's this genetic uh talk that y'all been doing some genetic research what's uh what you got going on there
2: yeah ralph jump in I don't you you here at the table too uh
3: <laughs> yeah so we our, our genetic research we had uh Uh, a couple researchers from the University of Arkansas uh, that we provided samples to uh, from across the state and they looked at genetic markers you know we know you know back in the early 1900s through probably the 1940s early 1950s you know we we moved deer from other states we moved deer around in our state uh, to repopulate you know um, you know we our deer at one time in a in the 30s, you know, we estimate that it had about 500 deer statewide. So um, we, we had to rebuild uh, our deer herd at the turn of that century. So we looked at uh, these genetic markers, and um, uh, these researchers, you know, they come up with this new way of, of studying um, parts of strands of DNA, and they could group these into nine uh, distinct um, populations across our state. Uh, We know with CWD that there are certain genetic uh, markers that that can make them more susceptible to carrying CWD. Um, Certain markers, um, not only carrying it, but shedding the prion more. Uh, Maybe they live longer, uh, but they shed the prion more. So we wanted to look at uh, the genetic makeup, um, what we call haplotypes, to see whether they were more or less susceptible Uh, but also, you know, again, like Corey said, getting ahead of this disease. Um, if we can see how these, these genetic populations are made up, maybe we can forecast which way it may spread if we get it into one of these genetic, you know, genetically unique population types. Um, you know, we found that, um, topography was a, was a barrier. Uh, we, we looked at, you know, these different you know, barriers on our landscape to see if it would influence genetic flow. We looked at rivers. Um, and so like, you know, the Newton County, you know, the topography is so dramatic there. Um, you know, that there's distinct characteristics of the deer down in the Valley as opposed to up on the mountains. Um, you know, we looked at, you know, the Arkansas river, we looked at the Mississippi river. um, we looked at major highways, uh, we looked at habitat types. so uh, all of those things going into that management plan is going to help us hopefully get ahead of this disease uh, in those, especially in those low population areas, uh, low prevalence areas where we where we have detected CWD.
2: Sweet. You know, Ralph, one of the cool things about that, I think there's two cool things about this project that really stick out to me is. You know, when you start talking about those different populations of whitetails, genetically distinct populations of whitetails in the state, and they made us maps showing the boundaries of where these populations are. It, it, I mean, it very closely re- lays on top of our current deer zones. And, you know, those things were based off of biologist observations and hunter input over decades and the closest highway a lot of times. Uh, but when you start looking at those deer populations and who interacts with who, it there's a there's a bit of a similarity there with our current deer zones, and um, and so I thought that was just a great point to bring out is is you know we've been doing that for decades and now science is is, is supporting the deer management zones structure that we've had for for so long. Uh, And then, you know, another cool thing we use that DNA for is we can tell you with some confidence as to where deer come from. So, uh, you know, like that, the sample that we just got from Felsenthal last year, we sent that off and those researchers told us with 95% confidence that deer came from that Felsenthal area. And so there was this, you know, the whole mindset of, well, did that deer come from Mississippi or did it come from Louisiana or did somebody bring that in from out west? No, we can say that it's genetically related to other deer at Felsenthal. Uh, So that kind of puts the end to some of those rumors. Uh, And then also, if, you know, if we ever had a deer at the Big Buck Classic or whatever, you know, at some point we could genetically say whether or not this animal is an Arkansas deer. Uh, just with the strength of the genetic database that we have right now. So uh the Douglases, uh Dr. Mike and Marlis Douglas in, in the University of Arkansas Fable has has carried us through this process. And uh I'm just happy that we have those resources here in the state to do that kind of work. And now it's deep water. I mean when those two get talking uh, I lose real quickly. Uh, they get me lost, you know, and try to drag me off where I can't touch, and it doesn't take much. But they have the ability to get that information down to the common digestibility for me. And and so uh, – but it's – I get excited talking about it because it's such cool work that we have access to here in Arkansas.
3: You know, that's that's one, one thing, you know, if there's a silver lining behind CWD is that, you know, this really advanced science and what we know about whitetail deer here in the state. You know, the, the, the genetic research, the CWD research project that's going on. I mean, it really, uh, by leaps and bounds, um, uh, propagated our, our science, our scientific knowledge of whitetail deer of here in the state. And there are a lot of states uh, now that are following that model. I mean, they're looking to see what we're doing. Uh, They're looking to see if they can replicate those studies, uh, how our research and our findings are going to help them. uh, Because you guys, I'm sure you guys follow. I mean, you know, Tennessee come up positive. Mississippi come up positive. Now Louisiana's come up positive. There are several states, you know, Alabama, um, that are looking to us now, uh, you know, whether it's our, our response plan that we implemented in 2016 and have revised, Uh, or our research Um, there's a lot of states that that hold Arkansas and what we're doing is kind of the benchmark now And that's you know it's kind of you know I hate to say that you know I hate to help these folks under under these circumstances but you know I'm very proud that that we've been able to do what we've been able to do with our research and the help uh, that we've been able to extend to other states.
0: Absolutely and you know we're sitting here talking about some some doom and gloom type stuff for the most part. But on a slightly upscale note, I have uh, read some articles here lately where we're shooting more mature bucks than we've ever shot in the state of Arkansas. And one of the leaders in the nation on ratio of mature bucks versus others. So um, somebody's doing something right somewhere. Y'all want to touch on that a little bit? What's, what, what's, what's, where's that coming from?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's just a, a function of, you know, in 1998, when we implemented the three-point rule, you know, our, our focus was to protect yearling bucks. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of an aggravating thing of CWD is that a lot of the management that we have really pushed and hung our hat on over the years, um, now we're having to turn around and, and, and try to reverse some of that in order to make sure our deer herds are sustainable. And so those those age class structures, a lot of that was has just been from years and years of protecting yearling bucks. Um, you know, now we've got you know a significant portion of our state that doesn't even have the three point rule, uh, and we're still shooting pretty good percentage of older age class bucks. Uh, and so you know, going back to what Corey said with removing the three point rule and, and targeting some of those um, you know yearling bucks. You know, when you have a, a high percentage. Of older age class bucks in the neighborhood, when that year and a half old walks in that in that on that playground, he's fixing to get his behind whooped, and he's fixing to have to run off to find him a quiet corner the 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 playground to play in. So, you know, if we can remove some of those older age class bucks, where maybe they don't have to disperse as much or as far, uh, I think we'll be better off. But again, you know, we. The three-point rule is, is something that we're trying to, you know, removing the three-point rule is something we're trying to do to, to encourage harvest across all age classes. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, that hunter's got to be happy with what they're harvesting. So we're not telling people that they have to kill a year-and-a-half-old buck. Um, you know, if, 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 if you're going to harvest a, a mature buck, man, we're still happy that you're harvesting deer. Uh, because having hunters, I mean, that's the win. We, and that's a big question we get a lot is how do you know when you won? And to me, I I keep going back to this, you know, how we know we won is we've retained our hunters. Is because, you know, hunt without hunters, we're not going to be able to win. That that is our number one management tool. If we can keep people involved, we can get them educated, maybe change some of the habits uh, like mineral licks and, you know, placing bait out, you know, maybe going to food plots. If we can get them to doing other safer habits, and keep them in the game of buying licenses and killing deer then to me that's that's a big one that's what's going to help keep population deer population sustainable
1: where are we as far as say since 2016 or, or 12 where what has been the trend in license sales for for deer for deer tags
3: well our 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 our, our license sales have been going down for some time uh, in 2020, when COVID hit, we had a significant jump in harvest or in, in uh, not only harvest, but license sales, uh, fishing and hunting, and the nation saw that as well. I mean, that was just a, a function of of COVID. Um, you couldn't do anything else uh, but get out and get socially distanced with, with wildlife. So uh, we had a lot of folks enjoying the outdoors, and we're thankful for that. Um, it rekindled a lot of folks uh, outdoor. Um, enthusiasm since 2020 um, 2021 um, our numbers went back down but it was still higher than pre-COVID and so I think this year we saw another decline Um, so we don't it's probably you know folks are going back to doing their other routines that they weren't able to do before Um, but you know again in 2020 we had a Uh, a phenomenal increase in license sales but we we had a record deer harvest as well and so you know we may we may be feeling some of those effects on our statewide population um you know we had some dry years like like hunter said a phenomenal acorn crop Uh, we may have you know harvested a a few more than what we probably should have uh, in 2020 but you know the thing about deer and deer populations here in arkansas we have always managed deer, um, you know, at right, you know, probably right at carrying capacity or a little bit l- below carrying capacity for some time. And so those populations are going to be plastic and they're going to jump right back to where we were before.
0: That's uh, you know, back, back to that kind of ties in with CWD thing. One of the things that, that Thomas and I have, have always preached and, you know, everybody is big. So, so if, if, the average person in the state of Arkansas, if you ask him if he's doing anything to manage for his deer, he says, yes, I've got mineral licks, I've got feeders, and I'm planting food plots. Well, you know, all of those are supplemental at, at best, and I don't know that minerals are doing anything, giving the deer anything that they actually need. I don't think there's one shred of research that shows minerals have done any good for the health or, or growth of, of deer or deer horns, but... um you know, one of the things that that would help this a lot that we preach and people seems to be the most often overlooked is that the majority of a deer's diet in in Arkansas, Midwest, most of the Southeast always has and always will come from native forage and native browse. And, you know, when when you've got uh, as many deer hunters as we've got, if we could get them to focus on creating more of that, Across their timber stands, uh, especially on the private land. You know, if, if that's what 75% of a deer's diet consists of, then that's where 75% of our focus uh, needs to be in managing for these deer. Plus, we're doing a world of good for turkeys and quail and, and things as well.
3: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, folks ask me, you know, what, what is the best kind of food plot that you can plant for whitetail deer? And I tell them, a lot of match. Uh, it's right. you know, control burning. Uh, timber management. Getting sunlight directly onto the ground, you're going to prov- produce tons of forage in that in that uh, type of setting, as compared to you know maybe 8,000 to to a few thousand pounds of forage per acre on a food plot uh, that's going to get mowed down in in a few days. Uh, but if you can if you can promote you know ragweed, um, you know greenbrier, all those things that those deers have those deer have evolved with over time. Um, you know, you're not only providing good food, but you're providing escape cover, fawning habitat, nesting habitat, uh, loafing areas. I mean, you're providing all kinds of benefits, uh, not nutritionally, to whitetail deer. Um, you know, there's so many uh, timber lots and, and forests now that, you know, they're, they're great to look at if, you, if you're in the state park. You know, you can see for, you know, a couple hundred yards underneath. But you think about being a fawn. And that's, that's one thing that our CWD research is looking at is, is fawn survivability. You think about being a fawn and you're laying in the wide open uh, on that forest floor. What are your chances of surviving predation? It's pretty, that's pretty right. um, So having that, having that native vegetation, that native grass, um, those type of things, that's, that's only going to improve your hunting and, and deer nutrition.
2: That's what I used to tell those deer clubs that i work with and I've always enjoyed working with deer clubs and kind of getting back to the dirt again but you know I which I know y'all have had Bubba groves on and and listen to that conversation about how much a deer eats a day and you know seven pounds of vegetation is quite a bit if you just took a five-gallon bucket and went out there it'd take quite a bit to fill that thing up but I challenged clubs and said, okay, if I gave you a fawn in this patch of woods, and I gave you a fawn and told you cows are coming, where are you going to hide him? And you can't hide him underneath this rock or that dirt clod over there. And so where are you going to put him? And that's where you got to have that vegetation at, which does provide that supplemental feed that not, not I'm talking about the the vegetation, the, the uh, component of things, you're supplementing your habitat but also cover for those fawns to give them a chance. So when the coyotes do come, they have a place to go and hide. Um, so it's, it's multiple benefits when you start talking about applying some kind of habitat management plan for your property.
3: Well, and, and, that's why
2: and, and, bass fishermen are smarter than deer hunters. Bass fishermen
0: know you got to have structure to protect yeah. fish from, from predators and let, let, let them get big. Um, but but deer hunter hadn't figured that out yet. The you deer, know
3: that's, You know we keep talking about nutrition of that particular animal, but you know there are a lot of other secondary benefits to that because you know there's been a lot of research that look at stress you know on a doe you know and in, in mature deer and so the the more they feel stressed the less they you know spend with their time in the forage eating and the more time they are looking around themselves and so if you're 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 thinking about a, being a doe. That's got fawns, and she's trying to produce milk. She needs to be focused on eating so that she's pr- producing an ample amount of milk that she can feed those fawns.
0: That's right.
3: There's a there's a lot behind that native vegetation, uh, the benefits of that 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 people just don't realize.
0: That's right. That's right. And you know we we say that a lot here, especially in the delta, big ag country you know these deer most of the spring and summer they're spread out there's just bean fields for miles and miles and miles and these deer are laid out in them and then all of a sudden all the combines come through and farmers are working all night and all of these beans are cut in september october and now these deer have to go to these little old woods lots that's all closed canopy and there's no understory and they just they don't have anything to eat if uh you know but we've still got big deer in these areas if we could if we could and and that's a critical time of the year you know we we've got the heat stress there in late summer and then uh we've got the stress from rutting bucks and and does pregnant and trying to build up lactation and i know there wasn't any soybeans planted here around my place until june this year so those deer went from october till june just on what they could find to chew on in the woods so um you know if you Thinking about putting on inches of antler and weights on our does, uh, we've got to target some of that and and yeah. not rely so much on crops and food plots. Yeah. Yeah.
3: That's exactly right. I mean, it goes back to, you know, it, and I was a biologist in Eastern Arkansas for several years, but it, that goes back to, you know, leaving edges, you know, planting those edges in, in early successional habitat, maybe, you know, reverting some of that marginal. Uh, crop ground into into habitat uh some of those uh places that, you know pivots and pivot corners and and uh edges and and uh you know really you know looking at what's in those timber stands uh is, is hackberry really as important as we think it is uh if we can if we can reduce competition of maybe one oak you know produce more acorns on that one tree by by reducing stem density and uh, there's there's a lot of different things uh, that you can do as a as a habitat manager to improve nutrition, escape cover, all kinds of things for wildlife.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, Thomas, what you got? Look like you're about to fall asleep over there.
1: Oh, buddy, I, no, I'm just soaking it up. And, and you know, <laughs> Ralph is talking about you know creating some stuff in in big ag. You know, uh, Quills Forever's been putting out some publications recently, and maybe OSU. I think uh you know on doing some strips and and whether that's pollinator stuff or you know CRP type buffer stuff or whatever you know there there's a lot of benefit to all that um for not just deer you know uh and hunter you you've said this a thousand times I don't know who you got this from but you know it's that story of man we got good news and bad news your your timber looks beautiful <laughs> that's the good news and it's also the bad news your timber looks beautiful you know when I when I got this place here um you know ralph's talking about being able to see a couple hundred yards you could see a quarter of a mile <laughs> it, you can see from one side of a 40 to the other it yep. was so closed canopy and there wasn't nothing growing and everybody thought man this is beautiful this is wonderful what what are you doing killing these trees have you lost your mind and uh you know y- if you're going to have that habitat you you, you got to do it
3: yep. you know
0: we always joke about thomas and i we kind of we Kind of learned all of this together, a lot of it self taught over the last five or six years. And uh, you know, one of the things we joke about now is back then we didn't know whether we should shoot the doe or cut the tree. And the answer was do both oh. and then burn and then burn everything <laughs> and then burn it all. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, that that habitat component. I was just sitting here thinking about it. You know, it's a sometimes as hunters, we may not think about. Uh, you know, habitat, until we start thinking about deer season, but it's a 12 month long cycle and all the things that happens in that 12 month cycle and all the experiences that deer has to go through. Uh, yeah. You know, on the females, lactation demand is huge. On the males, the rutting demand is huge, but you also have all these other factors and just thinking about the Delta region and fighting the water. Uh, You know, I was just in northeast Arkansas this past week and the Cache River is is currently out right now. And uh, and so that's displacing animals. And Ralph and I both have worked a lot with hunting clubs up and down the Mississippi River. And when you get those spring floods, uh, we actually did a project years ago with some GPS collars at Choctaw Island where we looked at deer movements related to flooding. And when we had those big Mississippi River flood events, we actually had deer with GPS collars on them. And, you know, the the story was leave early. That if if, as soon as your feet got wet, if you left early, then you would have a better chance. But if you tried to wait that flood out, then your survival just went down. Uh, And typically the males would bounce first so as soon as their feet would go get wet, they would leave. And but the females, especially in the spring, would try to hang out the longest. And we just kind of, you know, thought to ourselves that maybe due to the fawning, that they didn't want to go to a new area and try to have a fawn, that they'd rather stay local to have fawns. And when you decide to stay in a flooding vent, then the clock is ticking on duration. How long is this area going to be flooded and how long can I live on this little high ground of an island with armadillos, cows, feral hogs, turkeys and everything else is trying to make a living here? And, and that's where you start to see in those eight foot browse lines and things like that. But from our data, we saw that if you left early, you could survive. But if you try to wait it out in some of those big, long duration floods, then your survivability decreased. Uh, and so, just add that to the equation when you start talking about managing deer, especially in the bottomlands because uh, that flooding will also take away your habitat yep that's right,
0: that's right well what what about um you know one of the things we mentioned here in the beginning was harvest numbers are harvest numbers steady? are they down um and and what what are we seeing there?
3: So, so looking at today's harvest numbers uh, compared to where we were exactly last year, uh, we're a few thousand above where we were last year. Now, you know, were we, are we in that stretch of, of 2012 to 2018 where we were 200,000 plus? No. Uh, we'll probably shake out probably 185,000 maybe, uh, somewhere around there. So we'll probably shake out close to where we were in 2019. Um, but, you know, we're, we're pretty stable, um, you know, compared to, uh, you know, 2020, where we harvested almost 217,000. Um, will we get back to 200,000? Probably. Uh, that's probably where we should, you know, likely be, uh, 190 100 to 200,000 uh, with, with what we're seeing in rec- bond recruitment, lactation rates um you know that's that's kind of an unknown um when it comes to cwd um because we're, we're really you know diseases and disease management has always been part of the deer management equation but now with cwd it's taken on a little bit heavier variable uh so our focus is really um you know we still want to balance deer herds we still want to balance them with their habitats but we really focus on sustainability Um, you know, we, we, we talk about fawns a lot, but you know, that's, that's what's replacing what's dying each year. Um, you know, it's like a, I tell people, you know, deer management's like a bank account. You got deposits and withdrawals. Um, if your deposits, (coughs) excuse me, if your deposits, uh, out, outpace your, your withdrawals and your population goes up, if your withdrawals outpace your deposits and your population goes down in the same way with fawns, if, if we're not producing what's dying, then our population is going to go down. So we really need to focus, you know, on, on, you know, what kind of impact CWD is going to have. Uh, that's going to help dictate what kind of management regulations need to go to an effect, because ultimately the sustainability of our deer herd is our ultimate goal. I mean, we want deer and deer populations to be around for, for generations to come. Um, so, you know, I, I I tell folks and i you know a lot of people don't think that that we deer hunt that we just sit behind a computer and count numbers and beans and those type of things but we deer hunt i mean we go to deer camp uh, when we have the opportunity to and, and we have friends deer hunt so we we hear a lot from them as well uh, and i and i tell them you know don't don't get too focused on the trees you know enjoy the forest uh, enjoy your deer hunt um, you'll know, kill a big buck if you want to uh kill a doe um you know our average deer hunter in the state uh, harvests one deer our successful deer hunter so you know we we tell folks you know kill a deer kill a brown deer enjoy your deer hunt um so how we define success is is up to the hunter um you know but but we we are constantly watching and looking at trends uh we want to make sure that there's deer populations for for years to come i mean that's our ultimate goal
0: well see, so, I, I would have contributed that to something else because I know back in 2010, 2012, uh people would just about shoot any buck and and would shoot does and and whatever. And now, you know, we uh we're one of the states that shoot uh more mature bucks than, than anything else. I thought maybe some uh and and I've worked check stations over the last few years where guys say, oh yeah, I could have shot a uh, younger buck he was legal there I could have shot him but I was waiting on something bigger and you know well I've had does around me all afternoon but I was waiting on a buck so I think the opportunity is there a lot of times it's just yes. uh, guys are being more choosy
3: I, I agree I mean there are a lot of things that impact harvest and harvest selection um, you know where there's a big one you know if it's hot and windy we see that our harvest it goes way down yeah mass crop is phenomenal it goes way down deer movements way down um what what i'm seeing now um you know whether people believe it or not is you know a lot of people are going to these trail cameras that take sell pictures to you and and they can they can watch you know what's going on at their their deer stand without even having to go out and check get the card and if nothing shows up you know then they're not going deer hunting whereas in the past you may you might went out and checked your card but you're going to sit on the stand for a few hours um, and I'm guilty of this, you know, myself, you know, I, I'd go out and sit in the deer stand with, with the thought I'm not shooting anything unless it's a big buck and I'll have a doe come out and she picks me off and she goes to blowing and stomping. And then I get red faced. And before I know it, she's loaded up in the back of my truck and we're, gonna, <laughs>
0: you know what I mean?
3: I, and And so, you know, just being out in the woods, um, you know, being in deer stands, um, you know, cell cameras and and technology has changed some of that. It really has a lot more success. You know, they're getting a lot more picky on what they harvest. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a side effect of quality deer management is that people have come to expect. They know by passing a year and a half, two and a half year old buck, he's, he's got the potential to turn into something really nice. And so people, Um, you know, passing on those animals to allow them to grow older, I mean, they've become a lot more selective uh, in what they harvest.
2: I think we've raised, I mean, we've raised a generation of hunters now uh, with the three-point rule, and with, uh, you know, quality deer management in mind, you know, southeast Arkansas, we have, what, two zones, three zones that has inside spread, main bean length. Yeah, three. And those were hunters that wanted that they approached yeah. us and said this is what we want we want our management to the next level and that was one of the easiest regulations we ever passed because all the hunters in the areas wanted it And right. so, you know yeah in some of our counties now we've taken away the three-point rule to the cfd but you still have a lot of hunters who says that's fine you know it, it increases flexibility allows those hunters who wants to harvest a spike they can But it also, though, it it doesn't mean that everybody is harvesting those. They still have that mindset, I want to harvest a a two and a half and older animal, so I'm going to pass. And there's still a lot of that going on. And I think it's just that mindset that hunters have nowadays. And, you know, information is so readily available to us, uh, either through the Internet or through podcasts like this, that hunters are making more informed decisions uh, on the deer stand than they have in the past, and and so it's it really goes back to one of the key things that Ralph has been talking about, and even me to a certain degree with this research is the importance of data. Uh, you know, you have to have data, and uh, to manage something, and, and when it comes to deer, that's no exception. There, those harvest data that har- that Ralph is spouting, those give us a direction for the future. And you couple that with some observation data that he has, and you couple that with the biological data and the herd health data, then that paints a real good picture of what that deer herd's doing and helps moving it forward. Uh, and if you took away all of those data, then you're you're walking blindly. Yeah. Uh, and so it just goes the strength, goes back to the strength and the foundation of having good data set.
3: Yeah, I, I tell folks that, you know, the data that we collect is, is kind of like a piece of a you know, puzzle. You know, the more pieces that you have, the clearer that puzzle becomes. Um, and so there's no, there's no silver bullet. There's no data set that's going to tell you everything that you need to know. Uh, that's why I tell folks, you know, don't get necessarily hung up on on harvest numbers. You know, a lot of this other information is telling us, tell us something different. Um, but when we put it all together, it's painting a picture of what's actually happening. Um, and like I said, you know, we, we try to manage deer populations, you know, at or right below carrying capacity. So when big things happen, whether it's, you know, those, those floods that Corey's talking about, we had the buffalo gnats in what, 2018, 17, 18 in, in Arkansas County. You know, when these big, you know, environmental events happen, and we saw it back in, in 2000 when we had the ice storm in North, North, North Arkansas, you know, these pop, these deer populations, will rebound and they'll rebound rather quickly. Uh, so, you know, I tell folks don't, don't hang your hat on any one particular number. Uh, the sky's not falling. Um, you know, let, let us worry about the numbers. Just go out and enjoy deer hunting.
0: Well, we appreciate y'all not, uh, having, uh, knee jerk reactions to Uh, a lot of this. So.
1: I, one thing you, you mentioned, uh, Corey about this, study and a little bit of what you may already know about genetics is um one is dr chamberlain coming and helping on this uh research project that is specifically about
2: genetics no he uh we did the genetic project with university of arkansas
1: okay okay no. so what is he coming to help with something other than turkeys
2: yeah, he's he's leading our uh, the population impact study, the one we're talking about where we we uh, take the rectal biopsy and okay. have the deer with GPS collars. Yep. that's the project that that he's on. Uh, he's serving as the the principal investigator of it, along with Dr. Gino D'Angelo, with the University of Georgia, and Dr. Uh, Richard Chandler, and uh, and so those three are taking the lead on that and. You know, when that's that project is the largest project that our agency has ever initiated. It's a five year project, it's a $5 million project, it's huge. And so, when we started down that trail, you know, all the low hanging fruit with CWD has been picked, and we knew this one was going to be a challenge. And so, we did a we call it an RFP or request for proposals. We sent that out nationwide. And we said, we need, this is the question we want answered. Which of you universities want to answer it? And we had some universities that submitted proposals and we blinded them. They were all, uh, we had a committee inside Game and Fish and then some outside consultants uh, with some other uh, researchers. We blinded the proposals and that committee unanimously selected uh, UGAs. Uh, So that's how they were selected. And and this is their what are they going to their third trapping season right now? Uh we got another year of trapping. Uh it'll be coming up in 2024. And then we should start having some pretty solid results in 25. But uh this year we're going to start releasing some of our preliminary data on what we're finding. Um, but but yeah, that's that's how Dr. Chamberlain, you know, he's known for turkeys, but his background and his uh, just his research capability is amazing to me. He is a great partner to work with. Um, you know, there's no quit any and there's no compromise. And that was one of the things we visited with him about at the very beginning and saying, look, this is a huge investment for our agency and there is no plan B. And that whoever we select, I don't want to hear plan B. This <laughs> is the plan. And and, uh, and he agreed to that. He said, you're right, you know, and, and he said, I accept that challenge. And so he he's doing a very good job. I'm very proud of the work that they're doing. And uh, we they actually live in Arkansas. We have two researchers and, and, what, five technicians, four or five technicians that live here in Arkansas 12 months a year. Uh, they're living on gene rush, and uh, they're working seven days a week on that project. Wow. You know, uh,
1: the other thing that is fascinating to me, and and I could be wrong on this, but when you start talking about genetics and, you you know, you're talking about the early 1900s to maybe 1940s where we were moving deer around. And you tell me if I'm wrong about this, but we can still track some of our deer population here as to where they came from based on that DNA. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's, it's amazing how you can go back through time with genetics. They were able to link, you know, we we were moving deer from Syllamore to other places of the state. We had a a, uh, a deer place in, in Hope that we were using as a source for some deer. And these researchers were able to go back and connect those deer populations genetically. What's interesting to me also that came out is You know, several of our deer, especially in South Arkansas, came from Wisconsin, and we brought in those deer in the 40s and 50s from Wisconsin. So the Douglases for this project reached out to Wisconsin and just through our, our records, they knew the area of Wisconsin that our deer came from. They got DNA samples. And they were able to link those together. So our deer in Arkansas are still demonstrating genetics from Wisconsin through those generations over time, which is just tremendous to me. I, I, I just don't understand how that can happen, but uh, it's amazing to me. I really get geeky about it sometimes, thinking about you know how they can do that sort of work uh, when, when time is involved with that.
1: Yeah, and a lot of time, too, not just a couple Yeah, it's of not years. yesterday. Yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah. That's right. So what
1: about the main areas that most of our deer came from uh, when we did some restocking efforts? Wisconsin, obviously, and, and where else? Um,
3: Mount Pigsaw, North Carolina uh, was one of them. Um, we had some deer that come from Texas. Um, we actually, we, we run across... Um, Some articles um, in some early newspapers that the game and fish were actually buying people's pet deer in the state uh, to restock. Um, Howard County uh, had a deer farm. Uh, We were trying to to repopulate populations at a deer farm. Um, And so, um, northern. I'm I'm having drawn a blank. Uh, Northern Franklin County. We had uh, was the Black Hills. Wildlife Refuge, um, which evidently had a, a stocking of elk prior to our 80s stocking of elk. In the 40s, the Forest Service actually stocked elk in northern Franklin County, uh, and those over time disappeared. Um, and so then in the 80s, when.
1: Now, where's Franklin? By Johnson County?
3: In between Johnson and Crawford County.
1: Okay. Okay. West, West so North the U.S. Forest Service stocked elk back in the day in that region
3: yes yeah wow and so we we have moved deer um all over the state i mean yeah
1: yeah now you were saying something earlier ralph too about topography and uh not only how that and 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 uh y'all mentioned about you know other things as far as zones go deer zones but how does topography play a role as far as with the spread of cwd um what, what are some of the limiting factors you see there? Is it, is it uh, rivers? Is it mountains? Is it, you know, interstate? What are some of those things typically?
3: Yeah, so topography, what, what we found in our genetic research, topography was number one. Um, you know, what, when those animals have to traverse either a you know, really steep hillside, mountain, whatever, um, they're, they're less likely to do that. They're going to stay down in the valley if that's where they grew up. Or the, and we're talking about Newton County. We're not talking about rolling hills. This is, this is pretty – pretty Right massive. up and
1: down stuff.
3: Yeah, if you've ever been to Newton County, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, significant rivers pose more of a barrier uh, like the Mississippi. Now, we, we have documented deer swimming in Mississippi. We don't deny that's what happens. Uh, We, in in that research that Corey's talking about, the the Mississippi was how wide during that flood four or five miles. Yeah. Yeah. It was huge. We, we, we documented deer swimming it multiple times. So we know deer swim it, but it's more of a barrier than say, you know, a Creek. Uh, So it is some sort of barrier. Um, The Mississippi is probably more of a barrier than the Arkansas river. Um, Major, um, highways, interstates are probably of a lesser uh, than we, you know, than a river um, unless you're around, you know, places like Little Rock um, your chances of survival of crossing the highway in Little Rock are pretty, pretty low uh, surviving it. Uh, but, you know, there, there are um, varying degrees of barriers here in the state. Now w- are any of them impeding movement a hundred percent? No. Um, but but they are slowing genetic spread uh, over time.
1: well, and then you get you know like uh, that mSU deer that that was tra like one forty three or whatever his number was, and he decides to go like eighteen miles on a vac- summer vacation every year, you know, so there there are I'm sure the exceptions well, they, the docu-
3: they documented one in Missouri uh, they yes, last year that two hundred and something miles I mean yep. the thing just took off yeah and so those are things that we can't explain i mean it just it just happens um you know in eastern arkansas where you have you know smaller patches of woodlots those 10 those deer tend to move further um you know if you've got to go find further places for mates and food sources you're going to do that um so it it just really depends on uh just a combination of a lot of different habitat and land use patterns is what's going to influence the deer's movement
1: are there any habitat in pre, you know we look I ain't gonna lie to nobody you know I, I my bandwagon is habitat, of course, but are there any habitat improvements like we were talking about earlier, fire and TSI work and all that kind of stuff that helps with mitigating or or regulating or whatever the proper term is uh, when we're when we're talking about disease, not just maybe CWD but EHD or uh, you know any of those other kind of things?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's a whole other topic of discussion we could talk about. But yeah, I mean, the the more habitat and the better quality habitat that you have, the less stressful it is on your animals. Um, you know, EHD or hemorrhagic disease, you know, if, if, if you have an infected uh, uh, biting fly or a midge that has it and those animals are, are concentrated at, at water holes, yeah, they're, they're much more likely. To get it. Um, so, you know, if you're spreading your deer out, you're providing them good ample space, uh, good ap- hiding uh, habitat uh, that's going to, you know, low in, stre- low in stress, good nutritional quality, that's going to make, you know, for a better condition to animal. Now, is that going to keep an animal from getting CWD? No. I mean, no deer is, is, is um, uh, immune to CWD But the more concentrated you make those deer, um, the more um, that you have to increase those deer's interaction with one another. When CWD does come into that situation, they're much more likely to get it and spread is likely to happen um, much more readily. So anything you can do to improve habitat, to make sure that they're below carrying capacity, um those are things that's going to improve your deer herd and, and keep them healthy mm-hmm. better conditions
0: right great great stuff well guys we uh we appreciate y'all coming on and joining us today and and there's so many questions i would have liked to ask and it just seems like we just don't don't ever have enough time so we're gonna have to have y'all back on because i got a list of stuff here that that uh I can't start into we're an hour and 10 minutes into this podcast already. And I, I I better not dive into any of them, but um, does anybody have any closing thoughts that they would uh, like like to leave us with or leave the, the, the hunters across Arkansas, across the nation with?
3: Well, I just, I just tell folks, I appreciate you, uh, you know, learning. I appreciate, you know, folks interacting. Um, And as always, if there's anything we can do, uh to help or or answer questions that's what we're here for you know i I know the the myth the myth bug goes around and the the rumor mill churns but you know we 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 have nothing to hide i mean i tell folks that all the time i say we we're we're here to help folks and tell folks what we know Uh, and you know some of this is a learning process for us i mean cwd has definitely been a, a large learning process for us and we're learning as we go uh it's truly uh an adaptive management Um, uh, process and so you know anything that we any any information that we collect uh, anything that we know we're happy to share uh, with the public and our hunters
2: great yeah Uh, absolutely and I appreciate you too again for for doing this I know y'all devote a lot of time and and energy into this podcast and I I appreciate it I'm a kind of a podcast nerd and, and I listen to several of them and uh and so i know i know they just don't come easy and so i do appreciate you two and then just our hunters out there i know our hunters are picking these podcasts up and they're listening to them and that means a lot because they're trying to learn and they're trying to to you know increase their knowledge of conservation and game management and and like ralph said just holler at us you know it's we're all in this together um That game fish can't manage deer without hunters. It it would be a train wreck if we tried to manage deer without hunters. We'd be running over Walmart parking lots, you know. So it takes hunters to manage a deer herd, and uh, and so they do a great service. Uh, When we unleash those three hundred thousand deer hunters about first of uh, second week of November, they do a great service for the state of Arkansas, and we need that to continue to happen uh so i'm i'm thankful for the hunters we got i brag about them all the time how efficient they are because you need something removed you just release about 300,000 of them and they'll take care of it and <laughs> uh and I, I love that in them that's so a lot of states don't have that fortunate
0: that's right that's right well guys we appreciate y'all coming on thanks once again and uh we want to thank our listeners for listening and uh we'll catch y'all next week on the sawdust and fire podcast thanks a bunch